And thank you for joining us for our book at lunchtime today, our last in the in the calendar actually for this year. Um, my name is Victoria McGuinness. I am the business manager here at Torch, which essentially means uh, with the academic director, uh, we run Torch, which is the research centre here, and essentially is a community that brings together interdisciplinary research and also wider and public engagement. Um, thank you for joining us today and what I will do is just very briefly introduce the panel and the book we're here to discuss and then I'll hand straight over to our distinguished panel here. Um, we're here to discuss Unlocking the Church and with a very interesting subtitle actually, The Lost Secrets of Victorian Sacred Space um, and I look forward to hearing more about that with our multidisciplinary panel here today. Um, we're joined by the author, William White, who is Professor of Social and Architectural History. And our discussants today are Dan Hicks, who is Associate Professor in the School of Archaeology here in Oxford University, also curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum, and also currently the junior proctor. We also are very happy to welcome Julia Smith, um, Chichely Professor of Medieval History here in the Oxford University. And we're, our chair today is Mark Chapman, who is the Professor of History of Modern Theology and Vice Principal of Ripon College in Cuddesdon. So uh, I only have one more thing to tell you about today. You may have noticed OUP books are here today. Uh, they are selling the book, cash payments only, and Torch also brings you discounts. It's usually £19, it's £15 today. Cheaper, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> what a bargain. Just before Christmas. There we go. <laughs> In case you forget what it looks like, there it is. So without further ado, um, I will hand over to Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vicky. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be uh, chairing the discussion uh, this lunchtime uh, and to be part of this uh, uh, Book at Lunchtime series uh, and especially uh, for looking at Unlocking the Church, uh, available outside at 15. <laughs> they did seem to have a have a have a, a credit card machine there, so you you know you can't go away without it. Um, uh, one of the things I do uh, as part of my job is to teach uh, clergy, uh, and uh, many of them will go and serve in some of the 16,000 or so parish churches throughout the British Isles. Uh, uh, and in the Church of England, there are almost none of them that were left untouched by the Victorians, 150 or something like that, virtually none left untouched. Uh, and for me, anyway, that's why uh, William's book is so important. Uh, and reading through, it's also one of the most entertaining books uh, I've read in a long time. Uh, it's actually uh, extremely funny and has quite a few belly laughs, which isn't true, I guess, of many of the books produced by the history faculty, but I wouldn't <laughs> like to say that. Um, sorry, is this being recorded? Anyway... <laughs> Uh, there's lots of splendid illustrations as well, so it's actually got pictures to look at. Um, but it's also a deeply serious book as well about how we imagine the past and how we recreate that past, often to suit our own purposes, or if you like, imagine that past uh, and fantasise about that past. Uh, and one of the key things, I think, and this is true of, of all three of the panellists, is that they're interested in things uh, material things as part of the text of the past. So history isn't simply studying documents, printed documents or handwritten documents or whatever. It's also studying those things that people left behind. And obviously those parish churches throughout the country are big things uh, and often they say a great deal about the kind of culture that produced them. Uh, and they've shaped the culture that's gone on afterwards. 
I was thinking this morning, I work in a building that was designed by the great Victorian architect and fantasist in many ways, G.E. Street, uh, and he designed the building to produce clergy for what was a very rapidly changing church, but he did so along the lines of the Middle Ages. There was something rooted in the past that he wanted to bring about into the present and for the sake of the future. Uh, so that past is, in many ways, for those of us who are uh, in the church and minister in the church, that past is still there. It constrains what we do uh, and, in some sense, liberates us into the future. And so the book, in many ways, is not simply a work of history. It's also a work of, of practically engaged theology. So it's very much an interdisciplinary book. Um, and in many ways, I think what it comes out with is that when one is working with the material culture of the past, one needs to work with it rather than against it. And one of the great faults, I suppose, of the church, at least on William's uh, provocative account at times, is that it's often tried to work against the inheritance that it's got. But we will no doubt be discussing that as we move on. So let's uh, move on to our, our respondents. And first of all, we're going to have uh, William... Uh, introducing the book and then we'll move on to Dan and Julia who will uh, discuss the book and just to say about William uh, is at the currently he's also acting president at St John's so uh, an extremely busy person with a college like St John's to look, out, look after at the moment and has worked a, a great deal on uh, architectural history so has written uh, on um, uh, the great Oxford architect Jackson uh, was his uh, first book and uh, Jackson has left more of an impression on Oxford than almost any other single person for good or ill. Uh, those of us who lecture in the examination schools are very aware of that kind of domestic Tudor that has shaped uh, the whole of our lives as we uh, work our way through Oxford. Uh, afterwards uh, we'll have uh, Dan uh, and Dan is uh, uh, another person who said just beforehand that is interested in things, the material culture of the past uh, and so, again, thinking through how those material things affect the present day. And has written uh, on Cambridge Companion to Historical Archaeology and on sugar landscapes in the Eastern Caribbean, as well as uh, envisioning landscape situations and standpoints in archaeology and heritage. So, in many ways, uh, looking at the impact of the past uh, on the present and how it affects the shape of the present. And finally, Julia... Uh, will speak, and Julia is the Chichley Professor of Medieval History uh, and is an, uh, an early medievalist, uh, uh, but again interested in the material culture. So we've got different periods, different uh, subjects and disciplines, all of which will be discussing uh, the work of uh, religion uh, in Victorian England. So I'll hand over to William, who'll start us off. Well, thank you very much. I'm really thrilled to be here and thrilled you've come, so it's really kind of you. And thank you to um, uh, the uh, other members of the panel for giving up their lunchtime um, in eighth week um, for this. Um, I was asked to say two minutes and no longer than two minutes explaining the book. And so what I will do is first of all explain its origins in a minute, and then I will explain its contents uh, in, the in the following minute. Its origins are in a wonderful lecture series run by the theology faculty, uh, the Hensley Henson lecture series, which was uh, endowed by the uh, radical uh, Bishop of Durham, uh, Hensley Henson, and is, um, when you get the letter asking you to do it, says it, uh, it is for um, to invite uh, an ordained member of the Church of England or the Episcopal Church of the 
uh, of Scotland or the United States or the Lutheran Church of Sweden to deliver a series of lectures on, and I quote, the appeal to history as a fundamental part of Christian apologetic. Brackets, this may be interpreted broadly. Close brackets. <laughs> and as I was thinking about uh, that subject, and I said yes instantly, I then thought about exactly the kind of paradox that um, Mark was uh, elucidating in his, in his uh, reflections on life at Cudston that in the 19th century, and this is not a, a new uh, recognition, the 19th century, of course, a period of immense dynamism, a period of immense technological development, a period of globalisation, a period in which the modern world was in all sorts of ways forged, and a way in which a world in which the church has to respond to that massive increase in population, that massive urbanisation, and the increasing pluralisation of society, uh, it responds by building the Church of England, thousands of churches, the nonconformists and Roman Catholic churches, even more churches, so that by the 1850s there was a new Anglican church consecrated in England every four days. I mean, a staggering record, and the nonconformists are building even more than that. So this modernising impulse on the part of the church takes on the whole medieval forms. So it's a deeply modern movement, but it's a deeply modern movement which, as Henson wants us to reflect upon, draws upon history in order to um, achieve its goals. And so I began work, like so many people before me, working on that paradox and thinking about the Gothic revival and thinking about style and thinking about all the kinds of things that architectural historians like to write about. But the more I read, and I read in order to try and understand why this was happening, I read hundreds of sermons. If I were asked to give a sermon at the consecration of a church at any point between about 1780 and 1920, I could do it. I know what these sermons should say. I know exactly how they're structured. And what I found was that none of these things, and equally very few of the novels, very few of the poems, very few of the other material, the parish magazines and all the ephemera of parish life, very little of this had anything to say about history, very little to say about the style of the buildings or their appeal to the Gothic, but had an awful lot to say about two things that I didn't think historians had looked at very much. In the first place, they had a lot to say about the way in which buildings communicated theology. They had a lot to say about the way in which buildings were a sort of text. And in the second place, they had a lot to say about the way in which buildings were meant to affect people, that they were meant to have an emotional effect on people. They were meant to have a spiritual consequence. And that the two things, this appeal to text and this appeal to emotion, in some way <coughs> help to transform how churches have been understood. In the 18th century, churches are essentially preaching boxes. They come alive when people are in them. They come alive when people are speaking or singing in them. In the 19th century, I wanted to argue, and I do in the book, what they become is they become active agents in their own right. They become a form of theological text. They become a kind of missionary in their own uh, right. And in that way, what I try to do is in this book show that uh, it's not just that churches, more churches are built, that's true. It's not just these churches are built in medieval styles, that's true. It's that the very understanding of what a church actually was changes in the 19th century, and particularly changes in the 1830s, 1840s. And so this is a genuinely Victorian change. And with that, I will stop. Thank you. Okay, many thanks, William. Um, 
So, I think that in the next sort of ten minutes or so, I'm going to make some comments, and then we're going to hand over for some more comments. And I think our comments are going to be directed at William, <laughs> who I think will then respond. Is that? And then we'll maybe open it up. Is that? That's that's I think how it will work. So um, I really enjoyed this book, uh, and I would encourage every, anyone who hasn't read it yet to go and <laughs> purchase it um, outside the door afterwards. Um, and obviously, as we've heard, it's a book that started off as a lecture series, and it reads so nicely. I mean, the first thing to say, I really enjoyed reading it, William. So uh, it reads so nicely as a uh, as something which which uh, which works as lectures and has been edited into a narrative. But it's a narrative that is important for a number of reasons, and I want to pull out um, uh, a number of those now. I want to talk about what the book tells us about objects, about the material world that we've heard about, and especially about how we understand buildings. In that this is not a conventional architectural history. I've got to say, you know, the idea it might have been was one of the things that <laughs> worries me about reading this book. But um, as we hear in it, um, architectural history isn't always the most exciting of, 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 of areas of history. In that, it, in that architectural hist historians, as William argues, are hooked on, if you like, the histories of architects. And instead of the history of architects and the intentionality, the design ideas that are there, there's an emphasis here upon the results of those ideas and the material thing itself. And so the experience of the building is actually an important element of how we can write a history of buildings. And here, really, uh, what William is sort of you're drawing on in the background in a very you know, delicate way is the wider anthropological and archaeological work upon uh, the material agency arguments, the idea that the material world affects um, how, we, how we live uh, and is important you know, not only um, in terms of, 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 of the making of things, but actually in the making of the social worlds uh, in which we live. So there... I. I was interested there in really where uh, William sits himself in this history and in this account, this object focus, this sort of materially focused account of the history of uh, 19th century buildings. So in the anthropology literature around uh, material agency, the famous argument from Alfred Gell is that we are, and, uh, and it's it's in his account of, of art and agency, as he calls it, the anthropology of art. He says should be anti-art. We should stand apart from enjoying art or being part of art, uh, and we should see what art sort of does. And it's very much that argument that sort of William pushes. But I would observe that actually, uh, uh, yeah, where that argument comes from in jail, what he says himself, is from the anthropology of uh, religion where he describes anthropology as adopting what he calls a sort of, if you like, a form of atheism, a methodological atheism. We have to stand apart from, as anthropologists, what people think, you know, the gods or the, or the, or the agents, which are immaterial, that are, that are there, and we need to see how religion functions. And, and, and so in that case... 
in that respect, I'm interested really in where William is with his own faith and his own you know, participation in these buildings in this account of the material world. So that was the first thing. The second thing that I really enjoyed about the book, and which I think is really a, a part of its importance, is that it's a rethinking of religion in the 19th century. It's a rethinking of the history of religion, which is focused upon not only ideas, but the feeling and the doing of, of your faith. Um, he argues that the church is a source of, if you like, a mode of, of, of sort of thinking, a mode of a kind of text in certain ways, and, uh, and that in many ways this is an invention of that early 19th century sort of moment, but it's one that, had, that is actively reworking other moments in the history of the church. So we're offered a very different history from a conventional history of the Tractarians and so forth. We're given an alternative history of religion in which the building of things and the thing, and if you like, a theory of how important you know, the material world itself is, is there. I wonder, and so on that, on that thing, on that theme, you know, the thing I'd, I'd like to know more about is how we intersect that with wider social histories. There's, you know, there's a point at which you talk about uh, church, it, it, it's a sort of, it's a west of Scotland church, the Telford uh, built church, where where we're told about this very, uh, you know, the building of a functional you know, chapel or church there. But uh, there's no mention, for example, of the wider social context of the clearances of, you know, the politics of, you know, how it is that a planned village or town, you know, comes to be built. So how can we, how can we see that alternative history of uh, religion intersecting with, you know, wider economic and social histories? And the third thing that, that I really took from the book is really about, uh, about sort of time, really, and about how we think of these churches as a legacy of a certain set of moments in the 19th century, and how we think about them now as heritage, as, as, as resources which are expensive to upkeep uh, in the context of the, of, 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 of the use of these buildings as a, as a minority pursuit, really, and, and increasingly uh, over the years, um, you yeah, that is the case. Um, here, what we learn from the book is that conceptions of time and conceptions of history are built into a part of how these churches are built at the at the time, and this is the notion of the typological, really, that is that, that is really central. So this, the uh, the Tractarian conception of time as uh, typological, that sense of, if you like, the way in which the Old Testament is able to act as as a type for the New Testament, <laughs> is reflected or refracted into the building itself, the building, and you know what it is aiming to say as a text is there. As a, as a sort of you know, uh, as a building which is able somehow to prefigure what will occur within it. How do we think about that then now, in terms of how we think about restoration or sort of preservation, when those ideas are so contingent upon this moment of thinking about the past? in the present that emerges from those moments. So, so as sort of someone that works in a typological museum. Mm. 
you know, what does that mean in that, in that case? And there is certainly, I mean, the, that word, that notion of the typological in anthropology certainly has a complex but a significant relationship with this, this sort of notion of the encounter of old and new that occurs in the, in the, in the writings of the, of the uh, Tractarians and the museums are part of maybe the same sort of building impulse as we see in these sort of churches at that time. So we're, we're told about you know, Newman's interaction with sort of Roman antiquities. We are reminded of the importance of the, of, of the typological for the pre-Raphaelites. We, are, we see the medievalisms and the Romanisms and the revivalisms of the Gothic as interventions in time. So the, and so on that point, you know, the final thing I wanted to ask really was, was sort of, you know, would you, you, would you be able to reflect further on how we deal with this enor the enormous weight of this sort of you know, material legacy of all of these, these uh, buildings, of this moment in time in which you know, so much was built um, with, with sort of such a particular conception of time as part of it. But I really enjoyed the book. Many Thank you. Thank you very congratulations. Much. We'll go straight to Julie now, and then uh, William will have the right of reply. Good. Well, um, I would just like to second everything that um, Dan has said, um, and especially thanks to William for, I suspect, being the author of the invitation that came via torch, but also for inviting me and for having written this wonderful book. Um, it's great. And anyone who's heard William talk will hear his infectious enthusiasm and his rather impish wit coming through on the printed page. Um, and as has been pointed out, um, the three of us share a strong interest um, in the material turn which is sweeping, I think, all humanities and many social sciences disciplines at the moment. Um, and it's a great delight for me, recently arrived in Oxford, to discover that unbeknownst I've been following very similar intellectual trajectories to uh, my colleague in the history of faculty and also to Dan in the museum and in archaeology. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in my own work is about specifically the material culture of Christianity. And part of the reason why I'm so appreciative of William's book is that the paradigms of material culture as applied to the 18th century and onwards um, by cultural historians are very much driven by narratives of modernization and the rise of consumerism. And William is challenging that. He's putting the religion and the spirituality back into a narrative which, as handled by historians, has been overwhelmingly, completely and totally secular. And in so doing, William, I think you've recovered 19th and early 20th century England for the field which is shorthand known as material religion. And that's wonderful. I'm very grateful to you. So I'm coming at this book, um, as some of you may know, um, after not actually having lived in England for the last 30 years. Um, my accent won't tell you that, but I've lived either in New England or in Scotland. And I'm still coming to terms with just how strange England is. Um, and this book helps me begin to understand some of it. And I think I would say that actually it's a book about England, not about, Brit not about Britain. And that's a point that I'm going to come back to at the end. 
And I'm also coming at it from my own very strongly secular position rather than, um, as William has said, um, his position um, within the ministry of the church, um, which does come through at the end of the book. Um, and there have been phases in my life when I've had a very strong oppositional stance towards any sort of organisational religion. And in a way, you've made me realise some of what it is I've been kicking against <laughs> and about that Victorian element in my 1960s upbringing. But you've also made me very much aware how much my experiences of medieval church buildings as a historian is actually one that is shaped by and irredeemably affected by that Victorian screen of intervention and remodelling far, far more than I'm aware. So I'm very personally grateful to you for a lot. But I want to pick up um, on one particular theme about the book, and that is to the extent that it's part of the Victorian dialogue with the Middle Ages. Um, and in chapter one, William is absolutely explicit that the idea of a church building as symbolic, that it's theology in stone, is an idea which several medieval writers work with very extensively. It's not actually new, new in the Victorian era at all. Um, it's one that perhaps people lost sight of. But that's actually just one of really many points of congruence, for want of a better word, um, that were occurring to me while I was reading, despite the very huge contextual differences between your historical world and mine. And I mean, your world is a world of denominational competition, of the creeping tide of secularization, of engagement with a past that's fractured by the Reformation, irredeemably fractured, in which worship is in the language of everyday usage, except for the Catholic communities, and in also in an age of very rapidly rising literacy. And my Middle Ages are none of those, but there are still these points of congruence that I want to explore a bit. Just to give some few examples, when you're writing about laments about the state of the church fabric, the condition of the altar linens, or the relationship of buildings to proper deportment and demeanour, the importance of processions, all these are elements in medieval Episcopal programmes of reform and renewal, as Sarah Hamilton's very excellent new book, Church and People, 900 to 1200, makes very clear. The importance of clerical vestments marking the special role and the status of the clergy, set apart. The role of display and visual brilliance which vestments can convey is something which Maureen Miller's new Clothing the Clergy in the Middle Ages has demonstrated absolutely beautifully. The creation and moulding of sacred space around a church, again, is a theme very familiar to medievalists. Thinking about Fred Paxton's earlier work on Christianising death, on the rituals of death and dying, Michelle Lauer's work on cemeteries, um, and a very brilliant young um, American postdoc whose work is still unpublished, on the material culture and places of baptism in Anglo-Saxon England. All of this resonates very, very, very strongly for me in the pages of William's book. So the question then becomes, what are we to make of these congruences and resonances despite the differences of the eras and the contexts? And I've got two thoughts here to share with you um, and perhaps to pose as questions to William. Um, and one of them I take from my French colleague Dominique Yonnier-Pras two large books, La Maison Dieu, um, followed by Cité de Dieu, Cité des Hommes, um, the latter just published last year. And these are books which play with the tension between the church as a community of believers and the church as a building. And the persistent ambivalence throughout the Middle Ages of 
that interaction, which is not a straightforward mapping of the one onto the other. And Yon Yopal's starting point is Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, what sort of rock and what sort of church are we talking about? And Yon Yopal frames the question as one about the relationship of container and content. And that's the language he uses quite a bit. To develop an argument about what he calls petrification. And this, I think, runs as an undercurrent right the way through your book, this deep ambivalence. It's nothing, it surfaces from time to time, but it's not something you address head on. It's the relationship of ecclesia, of the church, as a group of people, to the built structure. Do they have anything necessary to do with each other? And I think it raises a question about a contradiction that may perhaps be inherent in what Christianity is, that there is this deep ambivalence. And does this perhaps help us explain some of these apparent similarities in such deeply, deeply different eras and cultures? So that's my first general question. And my second is, point is this, is that William's argument, um, boiled down to a nutshell, is that there is the development in the Victorian age of a new, what he calls an ideal type of what a church should be, playing around, of course, with Weber's notion of ideal types. An ideal type of what a church should be and of its enactment, and that that arises out of multiple quite specific streams of cultural, social, religious influence in the 19th century. But in the Middle Ages, on the other hand, people didn't need to invent an ideal type because they had them to hand. They had it to hand, especially in the Bible, and not in the New Testament, but in the Old, in the Jerusalem Temple, a sacred space defined by built structures, priestly rituals, words, and community adhesion. And the Middle Ages are full of both a textual and an actual built recuperation of the Jerusalem architecture in everything from tiny miniaturizations to fully developed <coughs> landscape settings as an effort to re-import, to represent, to recreate and make a, both the full scale and the mini miniature this model. And this, this is a built typological reenaction. So I'm actually struck by the rarity of biblical citation in the Victorian authors that you're talking about. They are not thinking the way that medieval authors do in and through and with the Bible. There's a sea change then in relationship to scripture between my age and your age. And there's an absence also, I think, to what by the 19th century had emerged as the professional field of biblical archaeology. These discussions that you talk about are framed in English terms with English reference points. It's actually quite a narrow cultural discussion. It made me think a lot about, well, why are churches so different when you go to France and Germany, for example? So that's my second general point, is about the very different nature of this typological relationship. And in conclusion, I'd like to come back to this point about the fact that it's actually an English book rather than a British book. Um, and to say that I think that there is an implicit selectiveness and incompleteness in the Victorian engagement with the medieval past of ecclesiastical architecture. Your book is about an engagement with the Gothic, but not the Romanesque. So it's an engagement with Salisbury Cathedral, not Durham Cathedral, here in Oxford with the University Church, but not what's now the Cathedral and was St. Frideswides. But there is a huge Victorian engagement with the textual past of that Romanesque and pre-Romanesque era. So one of my questions is, 
what on earth your Victorian commentators who read their bead, his, their ecclesiastical history, what did they make of Jarrow? <laughs> this wonderful, tiny, 7th century, small church. How did they react to that part of the built Middle Ages, which is still very visible, that is not Gothic? And so that selectiveness leads me to a final point, um, which is about the Britishness. Um, and William's book ends with a very select gazetteer of churches that he invites you, the readers, to visit. Um, and slightly wickedly, I'd like to propose an addition to it, yes. if I may. <laughs> it's one of my favourite churches in Scotland. Um, it was built by an architect you mention, Greek Thompson, Alexander Thompson, um, who is famous for avoiding using round arches. He would only build flat, trabeated buildings. And he took his inspiration not from Rome, but from Greece and ancient Egypt. And of course, he never travelled. He got it all out of books of plates. He, I don't think he ever travelled further than Edinburgh, if I remember <laughs> rightly. But the church I've got in mind is the church that's on St. Vincent Street in Glasgow that he built for the Wee Frees, for the Free Church of Scotland, which is a building of the Temple of Solomon. His goal was to find the Solomonic architecture. And I couldn't find a colour slide to bring along. It's rather in dilapidated condition, but it is this utterly glorious riot of blue and pink and white lotus columns of heavy Egyptian pharaonic style doorways and so forth in this extraordinary display of biblical recreation. And that engagement with the biblical past is something, again, that I was looking for and could only find in my recollections of that particular church. And I would very much like to hear you say a bit more about that. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you ever so much for both those both those comments and 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 your kind words um, too. But they're very difficult questions, and a lot of them. And I'll, I'll try and see what I can do. I mean, if I start with, I suppose, in some senses, the easiest, which is what happens to the Romanesque. I mean, one of the and this does tie into that sense that maybe they're not looking at biblical models for this, and it ties into that sense that Dan was talking about about the the way in which this interrelates with ideas of history and typology in this period because i think one of the things that one of the things that the uh, 19th century is acutely conscious of is being modern and being modern in the sense that they are cut off from the past and that you know in a sense this is a cliche but i mean one of the one of the things is you know what is the biggest magazine in the 19th century, the biggest periodical in the 19th century. Well, it's called the 19th century. And what that speaks of, of course, is their sense of the 19th century as being distinct from everything that's gone before it. And the sense that for historians, for archaeologists, for anthropologists, and um, for the people I'm dealing with too, they had a strong sense that the period they were living in was very different from any period that had come before. And they have a sense of periodicity and a sense of of, of you know, this is when the Middle Ages are invented. This is when the Renaissance, to a degree, is, is invented. This is when all these periods are, are invented. And what that implies is two things. One is that you should see your period as somehow different and distinct from all that's gone before. And two, you should try and explain how you've got to this period, what has happened. And so some of the great writers of the 19th century in England, at any rate, of course, are preoccupied with that. So if we think about 
architectural writers like Pugin. Something went wrong at the Reformation, and that's the great break point at which everything goes wrong thereafter. If you look at Ruskin, something went wrong at the Renaissance. There's always a, a break. There's always a caesura somewhere that leads to a break. But there's also an interest in... Newman is a good example of this, in development, in the sense of how time changes and things change over time. And that makes, uh, that makes the Gothic appealing, and there are lots of arguments about which sort of Gothic you should have, about whether you should have the perpendicular because it's the most developed, or whether you should have the decorated because that's the point at which it all starts to tail off. And the Romanesque fits in very nicely in this because they think of it as the beginning of something but not the end of something. So there are wonderful discussions in, in Oxford in the 1840s in the Oxford Society for the Promotion of Gothic Architecture, which does exactly what it says on the tin, which meets in the Hollywell Music Room to debate not least um, what would be the most appropriate architecture for the colonies. And there is a debate about this and they say, well, let's take an imagined church in New Zealand. They say, well, obviously we can't introduce perpendicular architecture there because they won't have the faintest idea how to do it or what it is. Let's start them off with the Romanesque and eventually they'll reach perpendicular. <laughs> um, and so there's a sense of a path dependency that will follow on. And the Gothic, the Gothic also appeals, and this relates to typology, because they they can read, and they're particularly keen on, on Durandus, this sort of high Gothic writer, who seems to them to explain everything in a church. And so you can go through and you can see, you know, here are triplet windows, that must mean the Trinity, here are the aisles, that means something, here's the weathercock, that's St Peter, and so on and so forth. And you can go through, and, and they can't make the same link, I suspect, with the Romanesque. I mean, they can read Bede, and they can see that he's interested in the temple, but then you go to Jarrow... It's very hard to see what, how they map onto each other and how that's the case there. But certainly that is something I ought to think about a bit more. Um, on the, and Thompson is, 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 is odd, <laughs> and he remains odd, and he's interesting. But he still is engaged in a similar process of thinking, actually, that buildings communicate ideas, that buildings communicate notions. And he just says it's Greek. That's the language we should be using, not Gothic. And he tries to find a different way of doing doing that. On the other questions, on the sort of more methodological questions, I suppose, yes, I mean, I have been very strongly influenced by the idea of material religion, the idea that religion isn't just, and even Christianity isn't just a matter of belief, it isn't just a matter of doctrine, and the form, you know, historians and theologians are very keen on measuring whether people get questions right. You know, so you turn up and you say, you know, have you heard of the Trinity? And a peasant says, oh, I don't know who they are. And then you're able to show that nobody believes anything, um, which is the way in which a lot of historians have operated. I mean, what material religion people, people like David Morgan have been doing is saying, yes, actually, religion is what you do and where you do it. And what, as well as why you're doing it and why orthodox people think you ought to be doing it. And so that has been influential. But I part company a little bit with the people who work on um, material agency in suspecting that things don't really do things unless we let them do things. That there isn't something... It's the difference, I mean, I suppose, between anthropology and, and, um, and history is that in all sorts, particularly the way history and the history of religion is done now, and that's very influential on me, um, the, 
the sort of distinction which anthropologists would make between, as it were, an emic and an etic way of analysing, an emic in which you try to understand how people understand things themselves, and an etic in which you try to understand how you, as a scientific observer, would, in very much in a gale sort of way, try and explain it. I mean, I think that buildings do things to people when people believe that buildings can do things to them, and that part of the interest in all this is the fact that in the 18th century people weren't particularly interested in what buildings did to them. But people weren't talking about this, and they weren't talking about this, and, and you know, one wonders it would be interesting to do more work on whether they're actually thinking that buildings are doing things. But something changes, and it changes partly because of romanticism and those sorts of arguments and the ideas that, you know, you go out into the countryside and you become a better person and that kind of confusion of ethics and aesthetics that the romantic movement brings about. And partly, too, because of really quite counter-enlightenment ideas. It's no coincidence that um, at the same time people like Jeremy Bentham are coming up with ideas of the panopticon, ideas of buildings that are actually going to make people better. And the 19th century draws on both those ideas. It draws upon the idea that, you know, somehow you will become ineffably better because you're encountering beautiful things. And somehow you'll also be better because you're sitting in pews and you're not able to slump. And if you're not able to slump, that means you're going to sit properly. And if you sit properly, you will think properly and you'll behave. And so those things come together. And the church, I suspect, like the museum, like the school, like all these kind of, you know, in a kind of Foucauldian way, all these disciplinary agencies come about and, 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 and seek to shape people. But I think that works because people come to see the material world in that way, not necessarily because they, um, not necessarily because they, um, they, they are ineffably affected by them. And that also, I suppose, links to the Gale point where he says, you know, should one be against art? I suppose one of the things I'm interested in is at what point do these buildings become art? I mean, at what point do they stop being, as it were, technologies, if you like, which are designed to make people Christian, and they become objects of art, which get preserved for their own sake as objects of art? And that's one of the big tensions. So Julia is absolutely right. There is this big tension between the church's community and church's building, which goes back, and the theology of all this is very complicated and interesting. But there's also a tension, which seems to me quite a modern tension, and a sort of product of the late 19th century in some ways, between the church as something that the church community can use in order to generate Christians, and the church as a thing that's beautiful and needs to be preserved for its own sake. And those are the conflicts that the churches experience now, in which you say, you know, a church says, we want to rip out our pews in order to make it a usable space for various things. And people come along and say, no, but those pews are beautiful. And they need to be preserved because this is an art object, not a, a working piece of theology in its own right. <laughs>